Hello, hello, friends, and welcome to the Great Day Podcast. I'm your friend and host, Mayor Kay. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And today's conversation is around something that I am passionate about, mental health. And we have with us today, Ross Abo, who's the man, the go-to guy when it comes to mental health. He's done so much to move the needle and the conversation in this space in a major way. And I actually came across Ross uh, because we both share a, a common passion and a project around uh, a kid's book about, and I wrote about a kid's book about optimism, and he wrote a kid's book about anxiety. Uh, seeing that he wrote this book and anxiety is something that I work through and deal with, I just you know cl- caught my eye and I just knew I wanted to speak to Ross. And the more I delved into who Ross is and what he does, I was like, I need this guy in the podcast. And here he is today. So to give you some context of who Ross is, Ross is the wellness director at Geffen Academy at UCLA, currently working on changing the way students learn about their mental health in grades six to 12. But FYI, if you're not in that age group, that's okay too. Our conversation touches on all the topics that will relate to an adult as well. His company, Human Power Project, has also developed a, cur- a curriculum used by over 250,000 people of all ages. He's the author of Behind Happy Faces, Taking Charge of Your Mental Health, and like I mentioned, a kid's book about anxiety. This podcast is great for anyone who wants to know more about what exactly mental health is, how to spot it, tools for dealing with anxiety, how to start a conversation with a loved one around mental health. Uh, We're also going to to touch on Ross's moving story. His personal story is moving and quite powerful, and it's amazing to see how far he's come uh, through his own personal journey and the lessons learned along the way. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. I truly hope that you enjoy this podcast with Ross Zabo on the Great Day Podcast. Ross Zabo, it's great to have you here on the podcast. It's uh a true honor, and uh, it's great to finally meet you. I've, I've been a fan of your work from afar, and more recently, we've actually shared a title of ending up on Oprah's favorite listings for 2020. So that's yeah. one of the books, yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> that's not a bad, uh, it's not a bad uh, union to have there. No, that's a, that's a really cool party to be a part of. And I think, it, yeah, for those who do not know, uh, some you may know that I wrote a kid's book about optimism, and Ross here wrote a kid's book about anxiety, and uh, I highly recommended it. I got the ebook, so um, and I read through it, and it's it's awesome. And for those who are listening, check out a kid's book about it in general. Their books are fantastic. But more importantly, I'm so super excited to be talking to you, Ross, because mental health for me is a massive part of my way of being, and it's something that I've recently have over the past couple of years embraced a lot more and, and stepping into and the conversation and the climate of the world, I think is a lot more open to mental health. And it's got again, a lot more aware around it. And you've been in this space for so, so long. So, I mean, there's so many different avenues I want to jump into, but uh, I would first ask, like, maybe just share like on a professional level, so people could like, oh, who's this guy to talk to me about mental health? Like, what, what, what are you like? What's your experience in mental health on that professional level? And then we could get more personal. But who are you, and what do you, what have you been doing in this space around mental health? 
Yeah, so uh, currently I'm the wellness director at Geffen Academy at UCLA, which is a school for students in grades 6 through 12. Uh, it's just a regular middle school, high school. It's on UCLA's campus. And the purpose of the school was kind of to innovate education. Uh, so I created a program where kids learn about their mental health once a week, every week from grades 6 through 12 as a part of their uh, everyday education. Uh, you learn about physical health in school. At our school, you learn about mental health. Uh, this summer, we're actually doing a mental health teacher training institute to teach teachers from around the country and the world on how to teach mental health in a classroom uh, from that normalization perspective. And then I also run my own company called Human Power Project, which is a company that creates mental health curriculum for people of, of all ages, from as young as middle school up to corporations. And uh, the curriculum is used by over 200,000 people around the world. So, you know, the yeah. question, Huge, the question man. is how, well, how? <laughs> That's big, man. That's a big impact yeah. right there. <laughs> and so um, even at my school, people are always like, well, how do you get to become a wellness director? Like, what, what do you, what, uh, what test do you pass? Yeah. And um, I've had a long run in, in mental health advocacy, like speaking to your point about advocates I started sharing my story with bipolar disorder when I was uh, 17 in 1996. And in uh, 2002, kind of looked around and was like, hey, why are there no full school assemblies or large scale presentations about mental health? Why did I always hear like, don't drink, don't do drugs, don't have sex, but nobody was ever like, talk about how you feel. And so, uh, I started my own nonprofit organization when I was 23. And then when when I was 23, I was hired by the National Mental Health Awareness Campaign, which was actually started at the White House by the Clinton administration in 1999. And so I kind of walked into this experience where nationally, mental health advocacy was just starting. And I was in a very fortunate position to be one of the creators of large-scale mental health presentations because at the time they didn't exist. And I'd go to conferences and people would be like, what do you talk about? I'd be like, I talk about mental health. And they'd be like, it does not compute. So right. So from 2002 to 2010, we created the first Youth Mental Health Speakers Bureau in the country. And I wrote my first book called Behind Happy Faces. Yes. And... Uh, you know, I trained over 50 other speakers who've spoken to millions of people. But in 2002, there were three other young mental health advocates in this country. And I knew them. Wow. And now there are millions. Right. We've come come a long way. I'm curious to know, like, what has changed and what kind of work we still need to get done in the mental health space. But before I jump into that, we're using the word mental health a lot. And I love how you describe it. I think a lot of people think when you think mental health, you think problem. Someone has a problem. What, how, how do you define mental health? The definition of mental health that I use is mental health is not having a problem. Mental health is how you address challenges in your life. So it is not being stressed out or not sleeping or having a diagnosis of depression or bipolar disorder or anything else. It's how you actively work to address those things. So your mental health is your relationships, how you communicate, how you cope, and and how you build your mind. Mm, Okay. And so, I mean, 
are does that differ between if you're a young adult to an adult? Are you are you over the are you over the hill if you're like, oh my god, I'm 35, I'm 45, I have grandkids. Are there certain tools that sort of go over like that that all people could sort of relate to and say, hey, this is a good place to start? Well, I think like the most important thing is that you do start incorporating some things that are effective in that time period between the ages of 12 and 25, which is the second period, largest period of brain growth in a person's life. But I often joke with people that adulthood is really just undoing all of the trauma, rejection, and negative neural pathways you built in adolescence. Like as you're in like adult relationships and marriages and having kids and all that other stuff, you're really battling like how you got there. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. And yeah. so, no, there's no age where mental health could stop being a focus. You know, my dad grew up in a home with like a classic 1950s alcoholic father and had some of his best mental health growth in his sixties, you know? Wow. So. Huge. I mean, and, and it's what's so crazy is like I actually recently snooped around your Instagram page and I saw recently you had a birthday uh, not too long ago and you were celebrating your birthday and on your post, you were saying how like this year, you know, this, this, this lap was a year which you felt most like in your skin, who you are as a person, you're in your early forties and like, and here I am like, whoa, like I'm, I'm 31 and I'm thinking to myself like, whoa, does that, does it take that long? Like, I'm not new to the game, mental health. I get, I'm in the gym, man. I'm not physically. I mean, I should maybe, but I'm like in the gym, I'm working out. I do therapy. I'm, I'm, I, I, it, there's slow process for like, and I guess it's like, yeah, I suppose I could really, I hear that. And I see that every passing year in some ways, I do feel like I'm growing more in my skin and feeling more comfortable. But yeah, sometimes I feel like I'm going backwards. Sometimes I think like in my mid twenties, I was the most confident type of guy that I was. And like now I have social anxiety, which may be surprising to some people because, you know, I'm a very outgoing guy. I'm a performer. I've done it for many years. I talk in front of crowds. And yes, sometimes I feel like when I go to a small dinner party, you know, and or around certain people, I my heart starts pumping. I get scared. I get in my head. My self-esteem drops. And I'm like, wait, this doesn't make sense. Shouldn't I, shouldn't I always keep going? And I know a lot of people before jumping on here were, curious about social anxiety so like do you have some sort of does this make sense to you and what's going on when this happens to somebody i mean there's no linear path unfortunately you know we can the 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 barriers to our mental health are our environment our biology and and, and just uh, from our environment and biology mental health disorders can come out at different ages a uh, majority of them do exhibit their first symptoms before age 24, but they can occur later in life. And, you know, I think what's hard is we keep promoting this concept that everybody should have balanced mental health, but we don't live in systems that encourage it. Mm. You know, even as guys, like we live in a system that doesn't encourage men to have emotions or reward men having emotions. And then we live in a system that rewards the bottom line, productivity, making money, whatever else it is, sacrifice, things like that. And so we can't really talk about mental health without actually taking down some of the systems that are harming it. And, you know, I think that's where a lot of people get caught up is they think like, well, I should be here. Uh, you can only really be where you are. And if where you are at 31 is, you know, 
in, in this place of trying to figure out um, how to adjust the social anxiety and reevaluate coping skills and things like that. I mean, that's where you are. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's no judgment for that. What I was saying in my post is I've really struggled to be present throughout my life, mainly because of trauma I went through and then like just kind of my upbringing. And so this is the most present I've been. I am not perfect. I'm not like balanced all the time, but like I'm present and open to doing the, the deeper work and being a better person, you know, friend, partner, all that stuff. Okay. Now, if someone's like, I think by now someone who's listening to this podcast connects with mental health and is not like, oh, you know, they, they perhaps have some awareness around this, have a work they need to do on themselves. But I do come across people, even if people my age, friends my age, who haven't stepped into like a therapist's office or think like, hey, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm, life's great. Um, is that possible at this age? Is there a way to get through childhood and like young adulthood without like having to work like and to, to face certain things in, in one's own life and psyche? A hundred percent. I mean, I think like, I think what you're coming down to is kind of like, how do we phrase this? Right. Yeah. So if you think about physical health, the, the way we look at physical health is you're constantly working on it. And you don't, you don't see someone leaving a gym, maybe during COVID times, you're like, yo, no gym, dude. Yeah, right. But like, in normal times, you don't see someone leaving a gym and think like, what a loser. They're not naturally thin and strong. They have to work at it. Uh, you see that person leaving the gym or exercising, you're like, oh, I should do that too. With mental health, the way we frame it is different. And we frame it from a place of only people with problems should seek help. And so when you're in that paradigm, when you look at that spectrum, then there's a lot of judgment and labels from it. So we need to actually normalize seeking mental health in a, in a way where when we see someone doing it, we celebrate that as much as we celebrate them taking care of their physical health. Because the reality is you don't need to have like diabetes to go to the gym. True. But, but the way we treat mental health in our society is you do need to have a problem to work on your mental health. And that's where the judgment, stigma, stereotypes, everything else comes in. Right. And so that's, that's a beautiful point right there. And that's really, do you have to need a problem to fix, but it's like any type of maintenance, you know, as we grow mm -hmm. and life is happening, we're part of the human experience just to keep working out, keeping that mental uh, strength going. That's really, really cool. And, and is that necessarily only, what are some of those avenues people could take? Is that getting a coach? Is that therapy? Is that just going for a run? Is and. Yeah, no, I'm open to all avenues. I think people should do what works best for them. You know, if you have a severe diagnosable mental health disorder from an evidence-based practice, chances are you need some level of medication with some level of therapy. If you're just doing medication without therapy, you may not be addressing the kind of deeper issues that could be leading to the symptomatology you have. If you're just doing therapy, you may be someone who, you know, would benefit from different types of treatment for that outside of like clinically diagnosed mental health disorders, there are so many things people can do to find that works for them. Some people do need a coach. They do need someone to kind of like walk them through like, Hey, let's try to reach this next goal. Let's try to reach this next step. And that step could be, are you, are you vulnerable? Are you yeah. telling someone what you need? 
Are you setting a boundary, right? And then outside of that, we can have people who just need to exercise to get endorphins going. They need to talk to people. They need to write. They need to listen to music. They need to meditate. The spectrum's pretty wide. I think the one dangerous thing that has happened with as much mental health awareness is that we have not found a way to to treat severe mental illness. So we've almost moved the pendulum of mental health so far to the people who don't have severe mental illness that, you know, we, we don't see a lot of paths for them. They end up homeless. They end up in a system that doesn't treat them well. And, uh, you know, we can't, we can't dismiss any aspects of it, but uh, I am, I'm a firm believer that people should find what works best for them, no matter what it is. Right. Fair enough. And so when it comes to like, you know, you, you've, you've spoken a lot to I mean, over a million students and, and, and create curriculums. Is there one specific question or a question that comes up quite often after your talk that young people or people in general have when it comes around to, to around the topic of mental health? Yeah, I think the biggest thing people want to know is like, how can they get somebody to accept help or accept that they have a problem? I think that's the number one issue. Uh, because the, you know, the heartbreaking challenge in this is that we can't motivate others to, to do it or, um, fix things for people. You know, I think that's one of the biggest things parents struggle with is they see their kid in pain and they're like, I just want them to not be in pain. But, you know, we see that even, uh, in, in, in middle ages where we're like, man, I wish this person could just, you know, do this thing or, or get it together. And, that is, I think, the most infuriating aspect of mental health is that uh, nothing we necessarily say or do can make someone seek out help or get the help they need. And, and I've seen so many families watch someone struggle with addiction or depression or some other you know, severe problem uh, all the way until you know, they, they pass away or they, or they die and And that's the thing I, you know, I don't have like a cheery, happy, like solve for, but I do want to be honest that like, that's where most people are. They're like, well, how can I get this person to do this? Mm. And so in those moments, because you're right, you could bring the camel to the water, but you can't make them drink. What can a a good friend or a family Mm. member do in those circumstances? Is there something that something that they can say or show up in a way that allows the person to know that they're there for them? I mean, I think it's really important to be persistent and not give up. I think it's important to let somebody know like, Hey, the door is always open. If you need it, I think it's helpful to try and make them comfortable by comparing mental health to physical health. I think it's beneficial to kind of find out why they don't want to seek help. Like for a good six years of my life, I had access to a therapist and treatment and everything else. And I wasn't compliant with it because I felt embarrassed and stupid and ashamed and weak and, felt like my problems should go away on their own and felt like I should be able to suck it up and deal with it. And if I couldn't, something was wrong with me. And so, you know, I do think like trying to normalize it and help people feel comfortable can be beneficial, but like, you know, if your friend broke their leg and you were walking with them, you wouldn't say like, stay here and then go to a pharmacy and get cast things and bring it back. You'd, you'd call 911 and get them help. And sometimes friends and family members are in a situation where like, you can't be your friend's therapist. You can't be your family members, 
like mental health professional. And so getting them to that person who can help them is, is important. Mm, okay. That's a, I hear that is just to like to, uh, to pivot to uh, more specifically with the mental health, like anxiety. Um, mm-hmm. I know like, cause it, we, you know, you, you did just write the book, you know, case book about, about anxiety and uh, it's fantastic. It's, it's so well written and, and you break it down so beautifully. Um, a, just curious to know why you chose anxiety. I mean, mental health is a big spectrum. Like what made you choose anxiety to write about in for the kids book? For me, anxiety is like the gateway drug to mental health disorders. It's like, if you look at most mental health disorders at the core of it is some level of anxiety, even depression. Like even when I had like intense suicidal thoughts, what was keeping the suicidal thoughts alive for me was the anxiety, not the depression. The depression was like, um, you know, you should kill yourself. The anxiety was like, Oh, that's weird. Why are you thinking that? And then keeping it in this like anxiety, depression loop. And so if kids are able to, recognize anxiety from a young age and start finding ways to uh, cope with it, it's going to help change the trajectory of, of their lives. In today's society, anxiety is so rampant, either from a low level, which I would refer to more as nervousness than anxiety, up, up to like the extreme levels of anxiety disorders. And so, you know, we're in a different age of communication now, and, and anxiety is one of the biggest... Uh, aspects of it and what what is what is anxiety trying to tell the person what kind of message is there like what's it trying to teach us in that moment is there is there a lesson there i would say nervousness is trying to teach you something nervousness is a small activation of the fight or flight mechanism that wants you to pay attention so the butterflies you get in your stomach before you do something different or new is your actual fight or flight mechanism trying to say like, hey, pay attention. And throughout human history, we've needed that. Whether it was all the way back in the day when it was like something's chasing you or don't eat this, you know, plant or, you know, whatever, like that nervousness, that's normal. Everyone has that. Anxiety is that nervousness times 900 million. And that is panic attacks, the walls are caving in, you physically feel like you're having a heart attack, like you're going to die. And that type of anxiety is not necessarily like a learning tool. Um, it is a, it's a much stronger reaction that requires a whole other subset of ways to cope. So like, for example, you can tell someone who's nervous to calm down. Right. Someone who has anxiety, the opposite of that is being able to see reality. It's not being calm. Calmness is not on the same spectrum. And so, you know, it's just, it's a different process. But with anxiety, it's, it's, it's activating that fight or flight mechanism for such a long duration that it, it's not a, a beneficial thing. Mm, I hear that. And, and is there misconceptions around anxiety that you could share about? Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest ones is that um, in our society today, we've kind of replaced the word nervous with anxiety. Mm -hmm. And it's dismissing the millions of people who have an anxiety disorder and their experience. Because somebody can say like, oh, yeah, I I had anxiety and I just learned to calm down. But that that's that's nervousness. That's dismissing someone's like true experience with anxiety disorders. And I think 
that's what I see happening the most in our society is somebody who has like an actual diagnosed clinical anxiety disorder gets dismissed because someone's like, well, why don't you just calm down? But it's, uh, it's much deeper than that. Mm. I mean, is there, right. Is So you're saying the, the, the differentiation between nervousness and anxiety is that, yeah, nervousness is there. It's, it's there to teach us something. It's, it's, it's quite common. It's controllable. You, it's, it's tangible in some regard, but with anxiety, it's just rampant. I mean, when, when I've had, I've recently had, you know, anxiety attacks and that's when like, I sort of wake up in the morning and my heart's just pumping. I didn't go for a run, but my, mm-hmm. it's just pumping. It's going and my mind's starting to loop over the same, the same thought, the same thought, fear-based thoughts, fear-based thoughts. Um, are those some of the, some of those, um, I would say some, some of those are the uh, symptoms of anxiety. How are some, what are some others of those are it uh, for people to recognize that they're having some sort of anxiety attack, that anxieties enter their life and to seek help? Well, I think paranoia, you know, um, the fear of like going outside, the fear of being in crowds, the fear of being around people, um, and then having a heightened response to it where like you feel crippled by it. You know, it's, it's again, normal to have some nervousness about certain situations, but when it's crippling, when it's actually preventing you from doing the things you typically do, those are the bigger signs to look for. And so, you know, when you see those signs, then, and they're persistent and they're disabling, that's like, okay, this isn't just a a nervous reaction. This is like an actual, like anxiety, uh, either attack or disorder. Right. And I mean, you know, some of the, uh, some of the statistics, I mean, what's going on with, with young people today, could you share, at least some of those numbers to get some context for people who are listening to recognize that a, they're not alone if they're listening, but also be like how common it is to just help break down the stigma and to realize like, Hey, maybe your friend or your family member is going through something like this. Yeah. So we know that around 20% of young people have a diagnosable mental health disorder each year. And that anxiety disorders are the most common mental health disorders out there. So there's generalized anxiety disorder there's specific phobias, there's social anxiety disorder. Um, but, you know, in general, in this country, around 18 to 20 million people experience an anxiety disorder. Wow. Wow. That's, in- that's insane. And is that something that once you have, you have for life? Or is that something that you, you have to deal with, or you could eventually gain control over it and let it dissipate? So that's one of the more powerful things. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental health disorders. They're also the easiest to treat. And realistically, what you're trying to do when someone has an anxiety disorder is change the neural pathways in their brain. And and you can do that in a couple of ways. So one, uh, the longer you use a neural pathway, the more automatic your actions become. So if you look at like the world's top athletes, well, these are people who can play a sport at an elite level but they're no longer thinking about what they're doing. They're just reacting to the situation in front of them. An athlete who has to think like, now I have to shoot the ball is going to miss that shot because they're not fluid. They're not in their moment, right? And we do the same thing with anxiety. So the longer that you have a pattern with any kind of uh, type of anxiety, the longer that pattern is going to persist. The deeper those neural pathways get, the harder it is to change them. And there's a couple of ways to change neural pathways. One would be trying to change your response to a stimuli. So like, for example, 
if somebody has anxiety about heights, then it, uh, somebody could, like a therapist could walk them through kind of cognitive behavioral therapy where they might put them on a chair and ask them how they feel and then rewire their brain off the chair, then the ladder, then a house, then a tall building, just kind of walking them through the steps to rewire their brain around anxiety. Other things that people can use are, are different types of treatment. So, you know, some people do find a huge amount of success with medication. Uh, there's people that I know have been, had anxiety their whole life and like started medication later in life. And they were like, I actually feel no anxiety and it, they don't know what to do. Right? <laughs> right. But there are other treatments too, that people can do um, that aren't medication to help build those new neural pathways. But essentially that's all it's really coming down to is an anxiety disorder is a, a habitual pattern. And depending on the person, it could be so severe that they don't find treatments that work or for a younger person, it could be so new that they are able to build up and find things that help balance them. But we also can't judge people's treatment. Not everyone figures it out in a couple of months or a couple of years. Some people are able to lessen anxiety in certain situations, but there is no cure. Mm, I hear that. I mean, what's interesting, I, I suppose, is like, I know a lot of people before they get, you know, it, it engaged, for example, right, to a person that they've been dating for, they get insane amount of anxiety, or is that nervousness question. But, you know, and sometimes there are stories of where I know personally, where people like back out from the engagement, because there's so much anxiety there, that they translate perhaps that something is wrong, or something is not right, or they need to step away from it. And then they don't necessarily go back with that person. And then there's some people who push right through it. And, uh, and it dissipates, and it goes away, and they and they get married, or, you know, and that happens too. So like, I suppose I'm, I guess I'm asking like, what's going on over there? And is there a way to differentiate between, yes, this is my anxiety that it's, I have to deal with my own self? Or is this, mm-hmm. wait, is this something? And maybe it's another question about, is it teaching me something? Or is it something telling me, oh, red flag, red flag, something is not right here. Get out of the situation. Like, how do you I mean, find that line? <laughs> is this a, is this like a, is there any personal investment in this one or are you just asking for a friend? <laughs> no, 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 no. Good question. Do you have like a, do you have an engagement ring in your back pocket right now? Or are you like, uh, Oh man, my, yeah, the, yeah no, no, there's not, not, this is not my life, but I, but I'm very, I, there are people I am asking for a friend. <laughs> All right. So let me, um, let me try. Tell me, Ross, tell me the answer. Well, look, Going back to the example, nervousness tends to have a cause, right? A clear cause. Anxiety disorders don't always have a clear cause. Yes, there are the phobias, the fear of spiders, heights, clowns, you know, whatever, right? And yes, there are triggers for anxiety disorders, like being in large crowds, claustrophobia, going outside, whatever it is, right? But you have to think about the response to an anxiety disorder being an elevated kind of irrational response and the response to nervousness being understandable based on, you know, kind of what's going on. Right. So like when I hike, I regularly see tarantulas. I am not, I don't have arachnophobia so I can walk past the tarantula. That is one, me seeing a tarantula, nervous, normal, recognizing the threat, stepping over it. Somebody has arachnophobia sees the tarantula and does not have the, the common response. 
it's an elevated response that does not necessarily match what is happening, right? So if we take engagement, there's so many parts of that that could trigger either nervousness or anxiety, right? So the nervousness could be, this rain cost a lot. I am worried about spending my life with this person. I have, you know, a family history of divorce or bad relationships. You know, the first engagement ring I bought, I blacked out. I bought it in uh, the Diamond District in New York City. No way. And I don't remember how I got home, really. <laughs> and I got home, you know what I mean? But I like blacked out. And that engagement did not work out. It was like six weeks. It was, you know, whatever. Got it. Um, wow. But that, I think there's a natural nervousness about that. If someone is like having a panic attack about it, that means they're either prone to an anxiety disorder and it's elevating that response or um, there's something else in that that is bringing out the the anxiety. It could be the permanence, the, the perceived permanence, because let's be honest, like divorce and breaking off an engagement is like pretty, it's like not uncommon, yeah. right? So like in this scenario that you are presenting me with on this podcast about engagement and anxiety. <laughs> Very specific. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> For the community that I come from, though, in that background, the engagements hardly get broken off. It's like right. it's a few weeks, but that's that's a, that's a that's a good point that you bring up, um, and and it's sort of a wide net as well. So it's I think it's being honest with yourself and like having having that support and um, and and looking deeper if perhaps that's something that needs to be looked at. Well, in that community too, talking to other people and, and getting that support. Um, you know, there's probably a significant amount of people who had a similar uh, experience with engagement and they're, they were married for whatever, 50 years. And there's probably other people who were having that same kind of anxiety reaction and it just didn't work out, right? So in either situation, having support, being vulnerable, being honest about where you are is going to be beneficial because you can tell someone what you're going through and they can either like, help you through it or help you make a decision that is right. You know, you might, you might not be destined for a lifetime with this person. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So what are some ways um, and that people could go ahead and start breaking the stigma down earlier before I asked, you know, I, I touched on what have you, what are the biggest change you found from like starting this back in the nineties to now and what kind of work, do we still need to work on to, to bring mental health and that in the conversations around that to more, bring more light around it? Yeah, I, I think it's a couple things. One, if you're listening to this and you have your own mental health experiences, just remembering like the brain is a part of the body. We're not necessarily as afraid to talk about our physical health. So like find a way to talk about what you're going through, find a way to normalize that, do it in a way that's comfortable and, and beneficial for you the more honest and vulnerable you are, the more strength you have in sharing your story, the more it will normalize mental health. And then what's also happening in this digital age is a lot of people are like posting every detail of their mental health recovery without actually being in a place of health. And then like, we're almost at a place where like sharing so much about what's wrong is actually going to prevent you from recovering. And so we do need to emphasize that like on your journey through mental health, 
it is important to still have some goals you're working to, steps you're working towards so that you're not just like oversharing everywhere and getting the acknowledgement for what's wrong without being able to find a way to do the work you need. Uh, we have shifted mental health awareness to a place where now people are sharing so much that just going through a problem is celebrated and not having the kind of like follow up, like, okay, but I also have to like find something that, that a that, person gets a certain hit already just by, by the awareness aspect of it and to share it, they get some support around it, but that not necessarily do they follow through to get the help that they need to, to heal from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got that. And and is there is there a sort of a borderline? Because I know there's people who feel that sometimes like you know there's oversharing taking place. Like where is that line where one's vulnerable, one's vulnerable, and then when one's like sort of feels like they're dumping on somebody? Well, so I think for social media perspective, you know, oversharing would be maybe being so vulnerable that you shared something you haven't processed yet that everyone's reaction to that post is going to drive you a certain way. So if somebody is like, suck it up, you're going to be devastated. If somebody's like, I'm so proud of you, you're going to be elated. Um, oversharing is, you know, really thinking about what's the purpose of this. If you're just venting, you know, fine. Dumping on people though, tends to happen in a more individual setting where you're saying everything that's happening to you and you don't actually care what, that person's responses and you're completely unaware of what dumping everything on them is going to do to them. And I've done that throughout my life where I thought I was being vulnerable. I thought I was sharing, but vulnerability requires feedback. And it isn't just you saying everything that's wrong and then walking away because you don't care if you ruin that person's day or what they, or what kind of advice they're giving you, you were just out to like dump. Um, you can't really dump in social media necessarily because there's not, it's not a one-on-one situation where someone's giving you feedback. Um, you can certainly dump emotions, but it may not impact somebody in the same way as like a friendship, a relationship, a family member. Got it. And if somebody out there wants to start a conversation with a family member or friend, what's, where's a good place to start? I mean, the, the best place to start is understanding that like you have to help that person feel comfortable. You're never going to walk up to a human being and be like, Hey, I think you have problems and have them be like, you're right. I have so many problems. Thank you for telling me I have problems. <laughs> Maybe you and I can go get like a therapist together and we can talk about these problems. Like, Typically, when you notice your family member struggling and you want to talk to them about it, it's important to help them feel comfortable. So putting them in an environment where they feel safe, letting them know you care about them, letting them know that they would do the same thing if they saw you going through pain or problems, like all of those steps, those initial steps, like are really important. And then it's about like asking open-ended questions and letting them vent and share kind of everything they have been going through. If they see anything that's wrong, letting them kind of voice it in their own words. But, you know, again, comparing mental health to physical health, helping them feel more open is, is, uh, those are all really important steps. That's huge. 
I mean, I, I, I want to just go back in time for a second, because I think what you did here was a defining moment in your life and led into your career. When you share about how in your personal story, you got up, you heard, uh, you heard a professional came through your class and sh- shared about mental health and you got up, you were 16, 17, perhaps years old. Yeah, 17, 17 years old. And you got up in class and you said, Hey, like, you know, I can share from my own personal experience about what I went mm-hmm. through. What led you and for my share, maybe give some context to the listener about what took place that day, but what led you to, to that, have that courage to step up and, and expose yourself in that way? Yeah, it was it was a it was a process. Uh, I was I was hospitalized for attempting to take my own life when I was a senior in high school, and at the time I wasn't really on anyone's radar. I was president of my class and a varsity basketball player and a member of SAD and like every student organization possible. And I had this huge external life that people saw, and an internal life that was different. When I got out of the hospital, there was just a lot of confusion in my school. You know, there were people who didn't understand what mental health was. There were a lot of rumors. Uh, You know, people would refer to me as a psycho and a crazy kid. And I lost a couple friends. And so a psychologist came into one of my classrooms to talk about the patients he treated. And he chose the like most extreme examples possible. Mm -hmm. And so when he did, all the students started laughing and I wasn't laughing. Like at this point, I had been laughed at way too much. And so I let my teacher know, like, this, this just wasn't funny. Like, uh, you know, this isn't working. And he asked me what I wanted to do about it. And I was like, just let me speak. Like, let me tell people what it's like to actually go through this. They're, they're not understanding from these other sources. And so it was kind of anger, frustration, loneliness that led to me standing up in that classroom and, and sharing my story. Wow. And what did you find the reaction was like from the class when, when you shared that? So that's what was really interesting was when I shared my story, a lot of other people shared their stories and everyone had like a family member of some sort who had some type of mental health disorder. And so I learned at a really young age, like if you share your story, it opens other people to sharing, sharing their stories. Wow, that's and it fosters connection and, and breeds, you know, well vulnerability, but to be seen and to be heard. That's 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 insane to think like you in some point in your life you try to take your life and here you are today, like, you know, thriving around this space, helping people to you know see the the value in their life and bringing mental health awareness, you know, an author, a, a husband, and and really stepped in. Are, do you still connect with that to that you know teenager from back then? Is that somebody that's just like long and gone? Is that person set aside you? Is that something that you still those demons still come up or through the workouts you've been doing, those mental workouts you've been applying throughout these years? You know, it's it's you're you're far from that place. Yeah, I mean that's a really good question. I think that um, there are times where I can really connect to that teenager I was actually you know when I tried to kill myself in high school I didn't want to die I was confused I really didn't know what was going on and I was much closer to death in my like late teens early 20s when my self-hatred had like ran rampant enough where like I didn't care what happened to me I drove drunk I did drugs I had unprotected sex like I just I didn't care if I died right 
And I'm fortunate to have lived through that period without something severe happening to me. And so um, even at this age, I still have remnants from all the trauma, the alcohol abuse and, and everything else. So I am doing better than I was when I was that age. But I think like when we talk about mental health, it's, it's not about like having it all figured out or having it all balanced. Like it's more about like just knowing certain steps we can take in certain moments to try and help. But it's, you, you, you'll never be perfect. You'll never be a hundred percent. And so part of my therapy has been kind of going back and mentoring that adolescent who was so full of anger and self-hatred and depression and substance abuse, because uh, it's not the predominant force in my life, but my reactions, things like that are still uh, hardwired from that time. And so it is a good reminder to find ways to like myself, to do things that are steps to help balance my mental health. So I'm not nearly as locked into it as I was in my twenties or even in my thirties, but like, um, it is important for me to, to be aware that, that that was such a critical time period in my life. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you, you touch on the idea and, and I could relate to the self-hatred or to the, to like the, the internal dialogue that takes place where it's like, it just beats, you could beat me myself up. You know, I could be the harshest critic to myself. Um, and, and maybe that's entitled with perfectionism and recognizing that perhaps perfectionism exists and I'm not that, or the project that I'm working on is not that. Um, how did what, how did you work on yourself to, or to build that relationship with yourself, to be able to, you know, find a place of acceptance and love for yourself um, especially when you're, you know, so it's, it's during those times when we need to love ourselves most when we're going through something tough that we beat ourselves up even more. How, how can we go about loving ourselves and accepting ourselves, ourselves more in those times of imperfection um, and, and trial and tribulation? Yeah. And it's just such a long process. I think for me, what I had to do was find like one thing I liked about myself and at the time I just, I did appreciate volunteering and I think one thing that is often missing in self-hatred is believing in something bigger than you. You know, I think um, whether that's spirituality, whether that's human connection, whether it's religion, whatever it is, like volunteering gave me that perspective of there was something bigger than me. And I think the next step in that process is really understanding like you don't change self-hatred in an hour or a day or a month or a year. Like I went through six years where I hated myself a hundred percent of every single day. And if I had a day where I hated myself 95% of the day, I had to start seeing that that 5% was a change that instead of going from step A to step B, you you don't make that leap. It's like you, you, you kind of like crawl slowly. And of course you have setbacks. When I was battling with self-hatred, uh, you know, there were moments, there were a couple of weeks where I made some really big gains. And then one night just went out and like drank too much, cheated on my girlfriend, like all kinds of stuff. And then when I woke up that next day, I had to realize like, okay, is this me going all the way back to self-hatred or is this me like realizing like, okay, don't do that. Go back to, the steps you were taking, try and build from this. And 
you know, so it's, it's, it's having a connection to something bigger than you finding something you like about yourself, but giving yourself space to, to get there. We live in such a quick fix society that I think a lot of people think like, Oh, I hate myself. So now I have to love myself and it has to happen in 10 days or less, or I'm failing. And it's a lifelong, lifelong process of learning to like yourself. And you do need other people involved in it. Even if it's just one other person who believes in you or one other person who cares about you, uh, you do need to have like someone there to, to remind you that you're good, to remind you that you're worth it. In my darkest moments, I couldn't live for myself. I couldn't. I lived for other people until I found a way to live for me. Mm. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that, Ross. That's, that's powerful. And, and uh, I can relate to, to a lot of that of your story in my own, uh, in my own journey with going through severe depression and, and suicidal thoughts and, um, and going through years of, of just back and forth to find some stable ground. And, and there's some better days and worse days. And, and I'm in a place now myself where I'm learning through the, the onion peeling of like layers of the more you find there's always something new. There's always a fresh new, challenge to that, that which is a new gateway to learn more about myself and that i think is a place in where it's really to fully accept where i am and who i am in the present moment no matter what i am mm-hmm. what challenge that i'm going through it currently and you know i think a, a big a good place to start is the only time when the only time you can really change is you first need to accept where you are who you are and then you can only change you can't change pretty much anything before then before that level of acceptance um mm-hmm. which is I think a lot of humility and, and, um, and presence of just being in the uncomfortability of the feeling that you're going through in the, in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, hundred percent. And, you know, uh, everyone has their own journey with it too. And, you know, unfortunately I think self-hatred is at the core of a lot of addiction and a lot of um, self-harm and a lot of other behaviors that can often end in someone losing themselves or their life. And, uh, we don't talk about self-hatred as, as much as we, as much as we could, you know, we all have an internal voice and every human being will talk to themselves more than they talk to anyone else. Right. And what we say to ourselves is, is the loudest voice we hear and what we say to ourselves really matters. And so if that internal voice is loudly against us, it's, it's hard to find a way for, for us to be building ourselves or, or for us in some way. Yeah, unbelievable. What is uh, to this start ending this off? I, you did touch on uh, the Human Power Project. What is the goal for uh, that you want to accomplish through this project? I mean, look, my biggest goal is to change the education system so that students learn about mental health like they learn about their physical health. Starting Geffen Academy at UCLA four years ago was an opportunity to really find a way to do that. And I find that being in a school is and especially at a public university allows us an opportunity to really show like hey this this does work i feel like when i started human power project it's a private company that's outside of the school i was thinking like oh this will be like a really great intervention to like change education and it's successful like like people purchase the curriculum from my company all over the world but in in order to really change the education system you have to be in it And so being in a classroom every single day for the last four years has taught us a lot about how this can work and what what can happen. And so 
this mental health teacher training institute this summer is an extension of that. It's it's training teachers how to do the same thing, how to share their story in the classroom effectively, how to engage students around mental health and different steps that they can take. That my human my company, Human Power Project, is never going to end. We're we're always going to continue to offer curriculum and and do that from outside of schools because there are schools that that really need it. But there the the end goal is how can we change the education system? And you do have the behind Happy Faces mental health curriculum. What does what does you t- what do you touch on in that? Like what is the what's the curriculum encompass in brief? Yeah. Yeah. And there's two different uh, plans there. There's the core plan. There's the advanced plan. The core lessons focus on providing a definition of mental health, allowing students to share in a safe space, giving them a vocabulary. Like, you know, the difference between a sprained ankle and a broken leg. Most people don't know the difference between feeling nervous or having anxiety disorder, or that there's a difference between everyday stress and a mental health disorder or an environmental factor in a significant event. So giving them that vocabulary. And then we dive in deep on what is a coping mechanism? How do they develop? How can they change it? And then how can you help a friend? What can you do when someone's suicidal? The reality is 50% of young people don't seek help for a mental health issue, which means their friends are naturally on the front lines of mental health. The advanced lessons go more into risk-taking and turning good stress into bad, turning bad stress into good stress, understanding like how to take care of yourself in a, in a deeper way, knowing the definitions of all the mental health disorders, um, understanding the brain development of adolescence and how it helps set you up for life. So both versions of behind happy faces, mental health curriculum are effective, but there's like a core lessons and then there's advanced lessons. Mm, Got it. All right, Ross, what are you working on now? What are you excited about? And how could people find more, hear more about you and find more about you? On- sure. I mean, the easiest way is my, my website, which is just rosszabo.com. It's that's like three S's in the middle there. So it's <laughs> Ross, S-Z-A-B-O.com. Uh, on social media, I'm, I'm Ross, at Ross Zabo on Instagram. I'm at Ross E. Zabo. Uh, on Twitter and I'm on TikTok, but like I uh, just started. So any uh, Zabo's breaking it down, a little, little TikTok, any, little renegade. Any followers would be uh, beneficial. I think I'm up to like three. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so what I'm working on is again the the, the big focus is going to be this summer training other teachers. I have a couple books that I'm always playing around with and trying to figure out, and then. You know, I think one of the most natural ties for mental health is healthy masculinity. And what does masculinity mean in today's age? And how does the patriarchy actually harm masculinity? Um, and, And how does it harm young men? Because young men are leading in some really dangerous categories right now with suicide, with violence, with substance abuse, with loneliness, with living at home into their 30s, with getting less college degrees, master's degrees, doctorates. And I fully 100% believe we need to continue to empower, educate and change the system for young women. But it's clear we also need to do something for young men because they are, they're really hurting in a way that uh, we haven't seen and in a way that we could step in and allow them to release and, and be understood. So that's kind of the things I'm working on right now. <laughs> That is tremendous. That is huge. Big, big, big. I, I mean, it's a whole other topic to talk about. Um, uh, 
um, healthy masculinity. And uh, I have a whole podcast around that with, um, with two incredible uh, men where we talk about that whole topic. But even now I'm actually reading uh, a book called like, King Warrior Magician Lover uh, that touches on um, that whole like the patriarchy and, and masculinity. It's I'm mm-hmm. in the middle of it. I can't give you a full book review right now, but it's so far it's been fantastic, really eye opener. Uh, but Ross, thank you so much for taking the time uh, for sharing your personal story and and how you're showing up in the world around mental health and the teaching, and we'll have links uh, in the in the bio of this uh, a description of the of the of the podcast where people could find out more about this possible summer program that you're having, as well as how to find you. Uh, thank you, man. Really incredible to share space and time with you today. Thank you so much. It was a it was really great to to have this conversation. I hope we can we can do it again. Absolutely. Have a great day. Thanks, man. Thank you so much for tuning into today's podcast episode. Thank you, Ross, for showing up and sharing your wisdom and your experience with me, with us today. And I want to thank you, the listener. Yes, you for showing up and supporting this podcast. It goes a long way. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate it, comment if you can. Uh, It all helps with the rating of this podcast and helps uh, get the word out and, and for more people to know about the podcast and perhaps they'll be able to gain something new and bring some value to their lives as well. So I thank you for that. And like I always say, stay positive, be happy. I'm Mayor Kay and have a great day.